Well, it's good to be back with you guys this morning. I want to start by sharing a little story with you. Some of you have heard this before. When I was growing up, when I was in elementary school, uh, I was once playing in the nursery or in the study, in my parents' study, with my cousins and my brother, and we were just killing time while my parents and my aunt and uncle were out having dinner. Uh, and, and we were playing, we were kind of looking around in the study for toys to play with. There weren't a lot of toys. Uh, but I happened to find on, on the couch this little little box um, that I knew was my dad's. It was something of my dad's, but it looked interesting. So I opened up the lid and I looked inside. And it was actually really interesting inside. There were all these different colored metal cylinders. And uh, as, a, as a young boy, I liked to put things together and take them apart and play with them. And I saw that all these cylinders kind of screwed together. So I started putting them together and it looked really cool. It was kind of this long thing and um, and there was this neat little lever on it that you could kind of work back and forth and and my cousins were interested so they're coming over and we're kind of passing around and looking at it and we're kind of pointing at each other and, and and by God's grace I happened to be pointing it straight up when I when I released the lever because it turned out it wasn't a toy it was actually my dad's flare gun and it exploded in my hands and it shot a, a ball of, of red hot fire through the ceiling. Half of it split apart and fell onto the carpet and caught the study on fire. And half of it went in the attic and caught the attic on fire. Uh, now we didn't wait around to see the fire because before the fire was actually caught, all of us were running out of the room screaming bloody murder, terrified about what had happened. Now, fortunately, the the fire was put out. There was no lasting damage. I'm still to this day amazed at God's grace that none of us were killed by my accident, by my mistake. Now, what had I done wrong there? Other than playing with my dad's stuff, I should have known better than that. But where was my mistake? What What was I in error of? Well, I mistook a flare gun for a toy. I misused this thing that was actually a very dangerous explosive device because I misunderstood it. I thought it was a toy that my dad had left for me. It turned out it was a flare gun. I misused it because I misunderstood it. Well, that is the error that undergirds how our world messes up with money. The error that humanity makes with money is the same error I made as an elementary school age boy with my dad's flare gun. Our world misuses wealth. We misuse money and the possessions that money can buy because we misunderstand the nature of wealth. We misunderstand what wealth is. We misunderstand what wealth is meant for. So this morning we're going to look at what Jesus has to say to us about wealth, about our money, about our possessions. Now, uh, as I was looking through the Gospels, uh, there is a ton that Jesus says about wealth. I don't know if you're familiar with these statistics, but 25% of the red letters in your Bible, the words of Jesus in your Bible, 25% of them are about your wealth. Jesus has more to say about money and possessions than he does about heaven and hell combined. He has a ton to say about money. Actually, one out of three of Jesus' parables, these stories that Jesus taught, are about your wealth. He had a great deal to say, way too much for us to survey this morning. We can't look at anywhere close to all those passages. But as I studied them, I saw a common theme. Over and over again in these passages, Jesus focuses on re-educating us about the nature of wealth. Jesus is preoccupied with helping us to understand what wealth is and what it's meant for. That's really the, the, the predominant theme of Jesus' teaching. So let's talk a little bit about what our world views wealth to be. How would our world define wealth? Well, wealth, again, money, possessions, assets. According to our world, wealth is a goal to pursue. 
I think that's how our world would define wealth. Wealth is a goal that we pursue. Wealth is an end. It is an end which I work for. I go get an education and I get a job and I seek promotions and bonuses and payouts because I want wealth. I want to accumulate wealth. In the eyes of our world, wealth is a measure of success. If you are wealthy, then you are successful. So in the eyes of our world, wealth is, is a goal that I pursue. I dedicate myself to the amassing of wealth. Now, that's not a definition that Jesus was comfortable with. Jesus did not agree with the world that wealth is something to amass, that wealth is a goal to pursue. That was not how Jesus viewed wealth. In fact, he spent much of his time, much of his teachings trying to convince us that wealth is actually a lousy goal to pursue. If you agree with the world that amassing wealth is a goal to dedicate yourself to, you will be disappointed according to Jesus. He lays out a number of teachings, but I think they can be boiled down to three reasons why wealth, why money and possessions is a lousy goal to pursue in life. And I'd like to share those with you. Again, there's too many passages to look at, but we're going to really just focus on two this morning, two of the major ones. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. We're still in the Sermon on the Mount. We've spent a lot of time there. A lot of Jesus' core teachings are found in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be looking uh, in, particularly in Matthew 6 and Luke 12 this morning. We'll be flipping back and forth, so you can kind of leave your finger in both of those passages. Uh, but we're going to start in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. I'm going to read this passage, and then we're going to pull out of it a couple reasons why wealth is a lousy goal to pursue in life, why it will disappoint us. Look with me, starting in verse 19 of Matthew 6. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then flip down to verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Well, in the first verse, verse 19, we get the first reason why wealth is a lousy goal to pursue in life. Jesus reveals to us that wealth is an unreliable thing. There is no security in wealth. Wealth is an inherently insecure thing. Now, Jesus lists out reasons why it was insecure in the ancient world. This is very literal things that Jesus is speaking about, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. In the ancient world, you didn't have banks, you didn't have investments, you didn't have gold bars, you didn't have post office boxes, you didn't have safety deposit boxes. There were not places where you could put your wealth that was secure. So what you would do with your wealth is literally bury it in the ground or lock it away in your house. And in both of those instances, your wealth was very insecure. Someone could break through the walls of your houses. Houses were made of, of basically mud brick back then. They could dig through the wall and steal your treasure. If you buried it in the ground, it was susceptible to vermin, to pests coming along and destroying it. Metals would rust. They didn't have gold, things like that to store back then. Metals would rust. Cloth, a lot of wealth was stored in fine clothing. That could be eaten by moths, destroyed by vermin. Wealth in the ancient world was very insecure. Now, in today's world, we have a lot more options. I can take my wealth and I can put it in a bank account. I can put it in an, an investment account. I can do things with it that feel secure. They feel much more secure than the ancient world. 
And yet at the end of the day, my wealth today is just as insecure as theirs was. I think we know that better right now than we did two years ago. Two years ago, everyone was sure there was a secure place, absolutely secure, to put your wealth. We call it real estate. Go buy real estate and your wealth is absolutely secure. You will never lose it. It might not grow as fast as you want, but it'll never go down. We were wrong. Some parts of this country, people put a lot of money into real estate and now it's worth half of what it was just two years ago. They lost a ton of wealth. This recession has hopefully taught us, although humans have short memories, hopefully it has taught us that there is no absolutely secure place for your wealth on earth. Whether by recession or theft, guys like Bernie Madoff, or wherever you put your money, it is inherently insecure. Now Solomon understood that. Solomon was arguably the richest man in the history of the world. And he tells us in Proverbs 23, Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies towards the heavens. Solomon understood if you pursue wealth, you're going to be disappointed because it makes wings and flies away. You can never keep hold of it. It is insecure. Wealth in this world is an inherently insecure thing. It cannot give you security. Unfortunately, as I've, I've talked to people over the years, I fear that a large percentage of especially parents and adults here in the United States, they base their security on their bank account. They seek for security in life through the accumulation of money. For them, money equals security. That is an inherently bad idea. Money is inherently insecure. Money cannot give you security in life, there is actually only one thing that you can count on in this life, and it's not money. One place that you can turn for reliability, for security, and it's not money. We're told in Hebrews 13.5, make sure that your character is free of the love of money, being content with what you have. Why? Why should you be free of the love of money? For he himself, that is God, has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. In other words, money, wealth is not a source of security in this life. There is only one source, and it's God himself. God has promised himself to us. He has promised to meet our needs. God himself, we don't need money. God himself has promised to meet every need of his children. Every person on this earth who is a child of God has an absolutely guaranteed, 100% guaranteed source of security, and that's God the Father. Now, As you guys know, we've studied in previous weeks, we are not born children of God. We become children of God through faith in the gospel. John 1.12 tells us, But as many as received him, that is Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Let me just review this for you guys for a moment. Remember, we're born into this world not as children of God, but as children of wrath. We're separated from God because of our sin. And to fix that problem, God the Father sent his son, Jesus Christ, to do what we're about to celebrate next week, to die for our sins on the cross and rise from the dead. And if we have faith, if we believe in the name of Jesus, if we believe that Jesus was God's son, that he died for us, that he rose from the dead, we at that moment become children of God. And as children of God, we can rely throughout this life and the next on our heavenly Father, who will provide all that we need, who is our source of absolute security. 
Now, if you're here this morning and what I just said is new to you, you you haven't really thought about becoming a child of God, please come speak to someone later this morning. We'd love to tell you about how you can know absolutely for sure that God is your father, that you are his child, and that he will provide for you in this life and the next. Come talk to us. We'd love to talk to you about that. So the first reason that money is a lousy goal to pursue in this life, why wealth is a lousy priority to put high in your life, is because wealth is inherently unreliable. It cannot give you security. It is fleeting. Second reason that Jesus reveals to us is found in verse 24. Wealth is potentially dangerous. Let's reread that verse. Look at verse 24 again. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. What Jesus is teaching us here, what he's revealing to us here, is really two things, two dangers of wealth in our lives. The first danger is that wealth leads us away from God. That's the unavoidable conclusion of that verse. Notice there's, there's only two options here. You either prioritize God in your life or you prioritize wealth. Now let me explain the, the, the statement that Jesus is making. In the ancient world, technically, it was possible to have two masters. You could be a slave of two masters. What was not possible was to please both masters at the same time. You couldn't do that. Both masters owned you. They both had absolute authority over your life. You could not please both of them at the same time. That's Jesus' point. You cannot please God and the demand for wealth at the same time. You must choose between the two. You either choose to prioritize God in your life or wealth in your life. So if you prioritize wealth, it will lead you unavoidably away from God. That's, that's the unescapable conclusion of this verse. If you prioritize the pursuit of wealth in your life, amassing wealth, earning more and more money, gaining more and more possessions, that will lead you away from God. You can't pursue wealth and stay close to God. Paul makes the same point. 1 Timothy 6.10 for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, notice I've underlined something here. It's not money that's the root of all evils. Money is not an evil thing. Money is not a righteous thing either. It's a neutral thing. It's the love of money, the pursuit of money, putting money as a goal that you pursue in life. That's the root of all sorts of evil. If you seek wealth... If you put that as a priority in your life, it will lead you unavoidably away from God. That's the first reason that money is potentially dangerous. Not, again, that money is evil, but that it's dangerous because it can lead us away from God. Second reason that it's dangerous is because money can make slaves of us. If we prioritize the pursuit of money in our lives, if we pursue wealth as a goal, it will make a slave of us. Now, that's counterintuitive. When I think about wealth, I think about things that I own, money that is mine, possessions that are mine. I think of wealth as something that I own, but Jesus is actually revealing if I am pursuing wealth, then it's actually not me who owns the wealth, it's the wealth that owns me. If I pursue wealth, if I put it as a priority in my life, it will make a slave of me. And it'll make a slave of me in a couple ways. First, I become a slave to the protection of my wealth. If I'm prioritizing wealth, I easily become a slave to protect that wealth. I'll give you an example. Many of you know, a number of months ago, Julie and I bought a new minivan. Now, that was actually the first new vehicle I've ever owned. 
for years and years I owned old vehicles, and what I noticed about these old vehicles, I bought them once they already had scratches and dings on them, and so I never cared that much when they got scratched. I would pick the closest parking spot to whatever store I was going in. I, I don't care if I'm parking next to a huge truck. Yeah, the guy's going to ding it, but who cares? It's an old car. Now I own this new vehicle that I saved a lot of money to buy. I park on the whole far side of the lot, as far away from any big truck as I can. Julie and I, a success for us is not parking close to the door. It's finding a no-dinger spot. One of those spots is near like an island in the parking lot that no one is anywhere around. Okay, I don't think it was a bad idea buying the minivan. That wasn't sin, but it is a reminder to me that when we buy things that are precious to us, when we accumulate these possessions, we can easily become slaves of them. We begin to worry about them. The more valuable they are, the more we worry about them. I'll give you another example, retirement funds. Um, I began doing a retirement fund a number of years ago, and, and to track my investments, I put this little stock ticker on my computer desktop that's kind of telling me the price each day, and I found that I was becoming a slave of that stock ticker. Every time I booted up my computer, what's the first thing I'd check? Where's my stock? How's it doing today? It dominated. Every time I'd go to my computer, oh no, it's gone down another few points. I'd feel depressed. I'd feel discouraged. There went my money. I was becoming a slave of my investments. I had to remove that application from my computer. Now I check like once a month. That's as often as I can check because these investments can make a slave of me. I become a slave to the protection of my wealth. If I'm pursuing wealth, it can make a slave of me. Second way that I become a slave of wealth, not only to its protection, but to its growth. I become a slave to the growth of my wealth. If I am pursuing wealth, if it is a goal in my life, I can easily become a slave of its growth. Interesting study was done a few years ago. Amy Bernstein reported it in U.S. News and World Report. They discovered that Americans with household incomes under $25,000 a year on average say that it would take $54,000 a year to fulfill the American dream. But then they asked those who make $100,000 a year, what would they need to achieve the American dream? All of them said about $192,000 was the average. In other words, what they discovered is that the American dream is always twice as far as where you are. It's always double what the income that you currently have. That's what it will take to satisfy you. If you're pursuing wealth, in other words, it's a lousy goal because it's a goal you will never achieve. If your goal is to amass enough wealth, to become wealthy, you will never get there. You will never satisfy the need to amass more and more wealth. I'll give you proof of that. I think this is pretty definitive proof. John D. Rockefeller, at the time of his death, 1937, he was worth $1.4 billion. Now, that doesn't sound like a crazy amount today, but at the time, that represented 1.15% of the entire U.S. economy. This guy had over 1% of the entire United States in his bank account. That makes him the richest man in U.S. history. It'd be worth somewhere between $400 and $600 billion today is what this man had. Okay, so he's got a lot of money. We're, we're clear about that. But somebody came and asked John, okay, John, how much does it take to become satisfied with your wealth? How much do you have to have to be done, to be finished, to be complete in this pursuit of wealth, in this goal of amassing wealth? And what did John say? Just a little bit more. That was his mantra of life. I need just a little bit more. And so John worked day after day, his entire life, amassing more and more wealth to become the richest man in all of U.S. history, and he's still not satisfied. 
In other words, if your goal is to amass wealth, you are going to be a frustrated and disappointed individual because you will never amass enough to be satisfied. If you prioritize wealth in your life, wealth makes a slave of you. A slave not only of its protection, but of its growth. It dominates your mind. It drives you. You are always seeking more of it. I'm sure you guys have seen this in the lives of people that you know. Especially those of you who've been in the business world for a while. You've seen individuals who are slaves of wealth. They work themselves to the bone for a little bit more. It's always a little bit more. They get that promotion that they've been struggling for, and it's still not enough. They've got to work more, 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 because they become slaves of wealth. So why shouldn't we make wealth a goal in our lives to pursue? Reason number one, because it's unreliable. It's insecure. You can't hold on to it. You can't keep it. Reason number two, because wealth is an incredibly dangerous thing. If you're not careful with it, if you pursue it, if you prioritize it, it will lead you away from God and it will make a slave of you. Now, third and final reasons why Jesus tells us that this is a lousy goal to pursue. Turn to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. This is the other passage we're going to spend some good time in today. It's going to start in verse 13 of Luke chapter 12. It's a familiar parable probably to many of you. Very significant passage, though. Read with me starting in Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Jesus uh, is talking to the crowd. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. What Jesus reveals in this parable is very interesting. I want you to notice at the beginning there's nothing said in this parable about money being evil. The, the money, the wealth that this guy has, it is not inherently evil. Also, the way that this guy accumulated wealth wasn't evil. He didn't extort people. He didn't cheat people. He's, he's blessed. He has all this wealth because of God. God blessed his crops. He has all this grain, all this wealth. Okay, so money and wealth and possessions, all these things, they're not evil. What is the guy's problem? Why is he a fool? Because of what he chooses to do with the wealth. He chooses to hoard it. He doesn't give any of it to the Lord. And Jesus uses him as an example to teach us reason number three why wealth is a lousy goal to pursue in this life. Because wealth itself has absolutely no eternal value. That's what this guy misunderstood. Wealth has absolutely no eternal value. couple reasons why it has no eternal value. Reason number one, because it can't come with us. You can't take wealth with you to the next life. Okay, notice Jesus is making that point in verse 20. You fool this very night, your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? We spend so much of our lives amassing wealth, and then we die, and it doesn't come with us, it's left to others. Other people get what we worked for. That's the tragedy of death. We lose all this stuff we worked for. We lose it. He could not take it with him. It's really interesting. This is uh, one of the tragedies. If you ever go visit uh, the, the 
that kind of travels around, but this museum exhibit of the pharaohs, particularly King Tutankhamun, who we call King Tut. His uh, burial chamber is on display in various places. Uh, I've had opportunities not to see it uh, live, but see it in books. Really interesting. Uh, in the ancient world, the pharaohs, the Egyptians, believed that you got to take your possessions with you. And as a result, they were buried with their possessions. The, the pyramids in Egypt, what are they? They're big burial chambers. That's all the pyramids are. Huge burial chamber that was designed to be this place where the king could lay all of his treasures, all of his gold, in preparation for the afterlife. So King Tut was buried with golden chariots. He was buried in a solid gold sarcophagus. He has all this gold all around him, literally tons of gold in his burial chamber. And then in 1922, his burial chamber is discovered, and they unearth it, and what do they find? All the gold was still there. All of it. Tons of gold meant for his afterlife, meant for his enjoyment in the world to come. It's all there and now it's sitting in museums. He didn't get to take any of it with him. He spent his whole life amassing gold to be buried with it, only to leave it for 3,000 years sitting there where no one's enjoying it, sitting in a tomb. Wealth cannot be taken with us. You don't see U-Hauls traveling behind hearses. You can't take your possessions with you to the next life. You leave it here. That's what this guy discovered only after he died. Second reason that wealth has no eternal value, because it can't buy God's favor. You amass all this wealth on earth, and then you hope to stand before God and say, God, look at all that I saved, look at all that I earned, look at all this wealth that I amassed, and yet it has no value in God's eyes. Notice that's the point in verse 21. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. If you amass wealth, if your goal in life is to amass wealth on this earth, it equals poverty in the sight of God. What Jesus is revealing to us is that in the eyes of God, our wealth, our money, our possessions have absolutely no inherent value. Money is absolutely worthless in God's sight. I don't know if you understand that. Money, which is so valuable here in this life, when God looks at our money, it has absolutely no value in his sight. Our possessions, absolutely no value in his sight. So I think about this guy in the parable. I think about him dying and standing before God and and he is giving an account of his life and he says, God, look at all this wealth that I amassed. I was the richest man in the whole city. Look at all these possessions that I have. Aren't you impressed by them? And God looks sadly at the man and says, no, my son, those have no value here. So it will be for us. When we stand before Jesus Christ, if we look to him and we say, look, Jesus, at all the wealth that I earned, at all the money that I saved. I was so wise with my money. Look at all that I amassed. He will turn to us and say, I'm sorry, my son. That has no value here. It's interesting. In in 1923, post-World War I, Germany went through this uh, economic collapse that is historic. It's rarely happened. Um, Their economy begins to collapse, and the price of goods begins to go up, and and it begins to spiral out of control. Uh, Economists call it a a situation of hyperinflation. So that by the end of 1923, you have pictures like this. This guy is wallpapering his wall with German marks, with money. It would be like you wallpapering your wall with dollars. Why was he doing that? Because money was less valuable than wallpaper. Because of hyperinflation, because money lost its value, it went down in value. He is papering his wall with money. Same thing happened post-World War II in Hungary. Uh, By the end of the worst month of hyperinflation ever recorded, people were sweeping their money down the sewers in the streets. It was so valueless. 
And yet, as awful as these moments of hyperinflation are in our world's history, they are nothing compared to the hyperinflation of death. When you die, all of this wealth you spent your life amassing in an instant becomes absolutely worthless. In heaven, all the money, all the gold, all the possessions that we've amassed are worth nothing more than paper to be swept down the sewers. It's worthless. It has no value in God's sight. Why is wealth a lousy goal to pursue in this life? Well, reason number three, because it has absolutely no eternal value. We spend so much of our energy, so much of our life amassing something that is worth absolutely nothing in the sight of God. Okay, so, so money itself is not a worthy goal to pursue. I think Jesus has exhaustively shown us that the view of this world, that we should pursue money as a goal, we should pursue wealth as a goal, will not satisfy us. It will sell us short. It will not satisfy us. So what is money? If money is not, if wealth is not a goal to pursue in life, what is it meant for? Why did God give us wealth? Well, Jesus reveals to us, wealth is not a goal to pursue Wealth is a tool to use. Wealth is not a goal to pursue. It's a tool to use. This is a very significant distinction. I'll try to illustrate it for you for a moment. This, this distinction reminds me of, of a builder who is going to build a house. Now, a house is a very valuable thing. A house provides safety and shelter and comfort and security. house is a very valuable thing, but to build that house, you need some tools. You need a saw. You need hammer. You need nails. You need tools to buy, build that house. Now, those tools are like wealth. That's what wealth is in the eyes of Jesus. It's hammers and saws and nails to build something that has true value. The mistake that the world is making is instead of getting around to building the house, they're just collecting hammers. That's what our world does. They collect more and more hammers. They never get around to building something that has true value, lasting value. They just collect more and more tools. That leads to a a very unsatisfactory life. If you have no house, you just have a mountain of tools, that doesn't do you any good. Jesus wants us to understand. Wealth is a very good thing, but it's just a tool. It's not an end in and of itself. It's a means to an end. Wealth is an incredibly powerful tool that God has placed in your hands to accomplish things that have real and lasting value. Four things that I think Jesus reveals to us that money builds, a tool that we use money for. Number one, it is a tool with which we worship God. Now, we read Matthew six twenty one. Let me just remind you of it. For where your treasure is, there your heart or your affections and desires will be also. What Jesus is revealing to us is that there is an inextricable link between our hearts and our credit cards. I think he's saying two things in this verse. Number one, this one's pretty obvious. We're going to spend our money on things we care about, on things that we have affection for. That's obvious, yeah. Spend my money on what I care about. But he's revealing something else also. What I spend my money on, I will grow to care about more and more. My affections will follow my credit card. When I spend money on an object, I will care about it more and more and more. What Jesus is revealing to us is the inextricable link between our money and our worship. We will value what we spend our money on. To that end, money is actually a great tool for worship. David understood that. Uh, in Second Samuel, situation arises. Arunana, 
I think I'm saying that right. Aruana said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what is good in his sight. Offer up as a sacrifice to God. Look, the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. Everything, O king, Orana gives to the king. So this guy is offering to King David all of these things for free for David to turn around and offer to the Lord. That was how you worshipped in the Old Testament. You made these offerings. So here's this rich man saying, David, I'm going to give you all of this stuff for free so that you can take it and offer it to God as a sacrifice of worship. How does David respond? The king said to Orana, no. But I will surely buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, which cost me nothing. David understood the link between wealth and worship. Worship to the Lord that costs me nothing is not worship. It's valueless worship. There's an inextricable link between what I do with my money and what I value, what I care about. If I want to worship the Lord, I must give to the Lord. That's why we pass the offering plate in these services, not to guilt you into putting something in it, but to give you an opportunity for worship. When you put something in that offering plate, that is perhaps the most significant act of worship you do all morning. You are sacrificing something to the Lord. Now, what is good news about this act of worship is it's worship not based on the quantity that you give. You are worshiping the Lord not based on the amount of money that you give. We learn that, uh, we won't turn there, but in Mark chapter 12, Jesus is in the temple and he sees this scene. There's all these rich men coming and they're giving incredible amounts of wealth in the temple. Just tons of gold and silver coins into the treasury. And then this poor little widow walks up and she drops in two cents. And today's money would be like two dollars. And Jesus evaluates it and he tells the disciples, I tell you, this widow gave more than all of them. Why? Because they gave out of their surplus, she gave out of her poverty. She gave all that she had to live on. She gave to the Lord as a sacrifice. That's what worship is about, sacrifice. Lord, I'm giving you something that I really need. I'm giving it to you because I value you above my desires, above my needs. The rich people weren't doing that. They were giving out of their surplus. They still had enough money for their houses, for their fine clothing, for everything they wanted. They're just giving surplus to the Lord. That's not worship. Worship is when I take something of value to me that I need and I willingly offer it to the Lord as a sacrifice of worship. It's one of the reasons that you will never find Jesus give you a percent that you should give to the Lord. He never tells us what percentage of our income we should give to God. That's the question we naturally wonder. How much of my money should I give to God? Jesus doesn't tell us that. Why? Well, one of the reasons is because it's going to be different for every one of us. You need to give whatever it takes to make a genuine sacrifice to the Lord. If if what you give to the Lord is an afterthought, if it's a leftover, it's what comes out of your surplus, then it's not worship. You're not making a sacrifice. Our giving, our money becomes a tool for us to worship the Lord when we are sacrificing for his sake. When we're sacrificing to show how wonderful he is, how much we value him, that we value him above our money and above what it could buy. So money, wealth, is number one, a great tool for worshiping the Lord. One of the essential tools for worshiping the Lord. If you want to be a mature worshiper of the Lord, you worship through your money. You give to the Lord's interest, to the Lord's work, to the Lord's kingdom. That's the first way that money is a great tool. Second way that it's a great tool is money allows us to care for those in need. Luke chapter 12, further down in the chapter, 
Jesus challenges us, sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. Jesus is is telling us, he's challenging us, I want you to use your wealth, your money and possessions for the purpose of charity. Charity is to give money or possessions to those who are in financial need, especially those who are in dire financial need. They cannot provide for themselves. In the ancient world, that's the lame, that's the sick, that's the destitute, that's the abandoned. You guys saw a similar command who are studying the book of James, right? James 1.27, you saw this a few weeks ago. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. In other words, James is saying, what is the heart of religion? What is the heart of what God requires of you? Two things, and one of them is about wealth. To visit orphans and widows in their distress, to visit uh, isn't limited to giving money. It also means build a relationship with them, but it certainly includes your checkbook. It certainly includes giving money, giving wealth to meet their physical needs. In other words, if you want to follow the Lord, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you must give to those who are in need. You must give to those who are destitute. You must share the wealth that you have with those who are in need. Now, let me clarify something that I think is helpful. That includes the needs of your own family. Your wealth is given to you as a tool to meet physical needs. That's not just about people outside. It's also about the people in your own family. God God expects me to use a large percentage of my money to care for the physical needs of my family, to provide shelter, food, clothing, education. Those are things I'm responsible for. Paul makes that point specific and clear, 1 Timothy 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Especially for for us parents who are working, who are providing financially, we are responsible to provide for the physical needs of our families. That's why I I don't feel any guilt over buying a new minivan. We needed a vehicle that was safe and reliable. I provided that through the money that God has graciously shared with me, given me. Okay, so it was righteous to provide for my family. Now, Now, we need wisdom here. We need to balance, okay, what does my family need Versus what does my family want? <laughs> they want enough that we would use all of our money to satisfy our wants. We need some, some wisdom here to balance the needs of my family with the needs of those outside of my family. But money is given to us to meet physical needs. It's the second way that this is a great tool. Third reason that God gives us wealth is to advance the gospel. In Luke 16.9, very interesting chapter on wealth. You can read that later. We didn't have time for that today. But Jesus says in verse 9, And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Complicated verse, challenging verse. Uh, Here's what I think Jesus is saying. Uh, wealth of unrighteousness, uh, that's talking about our money and our possessions that we have in this life. Jesus isn't saying that your money and possessions are evil. He, he's saying, basically, they are not righteous in God's sight. That's, that's right. My wealth, my money, my possessions, they have no inherent value, no inherent righteousness in God's sight. We talked about that. My wealth has no eternal value, but this verse is great news. It's telling me I can exchange my worldly wealth, which has no eternal value, for something that has great eternal value. What is that? People. 
I can exchange my money which is worthless in eternity for that which has great value in eternity, the souls of men and women. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. He's talking about evangelism and missions. He's saying that even though God doesn't need our money, he loves to take our money and use it as the means by which he leads children and men and women into his family. It's the means he uses to bring the gospel to them, to do ministry around them so that they can be drawn into the family of God. And when we give our money and God uses it to bring people into his family, those same people will greet us when we enter into heaven. I think it's a a very literal concept. When I get to heaven, the people who are in the family through my money, not that God needed my money, but he used my money, the people that are there through my money will greet me. They will welcome me for all eternity. They will say, I'm so glad you made that sacrifice. God used your financial sacrifice to bring me into this kingdom. In other words, my money is a tool that I can use, I can exchange for the souls of men and women. It's an incredibly significant passage, incredibly significant verse. Way number four, that we use our money as a tool is to earn eternal reward. Remind you of Matthew 6, 20, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. Jesus wants us to understand, no, we can't take our money with us. We can't take our possessions with us. But if we give our money to the Lord, specifically those top three things, if we give our money as worship, if we give our money to those in need, if we give our money to evangelism, to missions, to the work of the kingdom of God, if we're giving our money away, then we are earning for ourselves reward in heaven. I like a, a way that Brian gave me to, to put this together. When I give my money to the Lord, what I'm really doing, in a sense, is I, I'm not really sacrificing that money. Actually, I'm investing that money. When I give to the Lord and his kingdom and his people, I'm not sacrificing. I'm actually investing my earthly money in an ERA, an eternal reward account. I'm investing my money in reward with the Lord. And, and I say that not jokingly. That's serious. When, when I give my money in this life, I am investing in an eternal reward account that is absolutely secure. It is not subject to the crises of this world. It cannot be diminished. There's nothing that can attack it. There's nothing that can reduce its value. It's absolutely secure. And it has an incredible return on investment. Best return on investment anywhere. I exchange something that I can only enjoy for a few decades in this life for something that I will enjoy for all eternity in the next life. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us in this verse what the reward is, but in other passages, he does. He tells us that as we use our money now to build his kingdom, it will result in the reward of glory, honor, and responsibility in eternity. Glory, honor, and authority. We will stand before Jesus Christ and he will evaluate our lives and he will see how we used our wealth. And if we were faithful with our wealth, if we gave it away, gave it to those in need, if we gave it to build the kingdom of God, if we gave it in worship, then Jesus will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a little thing, earthly wealth. Now I'll give you the true riches. I will give you honor. I will give you glory. I will give you authority in my coming kingdom. I really think that wealth is given to us in this life as a test of our faithfulness. If I'm faithful before the Lord with my money, this small thing, this thing that only lasts for a few decades, then in the next life, Jesus will give to me much greater opportunity, much greater resources, much greater responsibility. When Jesus returns to this earth and rules over the earth, he is looking for faithful men and women to share that responsibility with, to share that authority over the earth with. If we're faithful with something small now, our money, he will give us greater responsibility in the future. 
To me, this is the ultimate reason why Jesus never gave us a percentage. It's so funny how our minds work. We hear Jesus speaking about money, and we immediately jump to the question, how much am I obligated to give? God, how much do you want me to give? Jesus never asks, answers that question. The reason why is it's the wrong question to ask. I want to give you a little, little story to think about. Imagine that Warren Buffett, arguably the most successful businessman in America in recent years, comes to you personally. He, he Somehow he knows you by name. He comes to your house and he says, I want to give you a great opportunity with me. I'm about to start a new business. It's, it's guaranteed to succeed. I've already talked to all the players. I'm not announcing it for a few more days. It's not going public yet. I want to give you an opportunity, just because I'm a kind guy, to get in on the ground floor of this deal. You're going to invest in this when it goes public. It'll be a thousand-fold return on your investment. Okay, when, when Warren offers you that, is the question that jumps to your mind, Warren, how much am I obligated to give? How much do you expect of me? Let me pull out my checkbook. All right, let me get this over with. No, you're, you're calling your spouse on the phone saying, how much is in the bank account? How much can we give and still make our mortgage this month? You're thinking of all the things you can sell. Can I go sell one of the cars so that I can have more money to give Warren Buffett? Because this is guaranteed. This is going to pay out huge. This is Warren Buffett. This isn't an obligation. This is an honor. This is a privilege. And yet Jesus is telling us, as great as it would be to invest with Warren Buffett, it's even better to invest in eternity. It's even better to invest with the Lord. It's more secure it has a longer payout, has greater return. When we go before the Lord and we ask the question, God, how much do you expect me to give? How much do you want from me? That's the wrong question. We ought to be asking the Lord, God, how much can I give and still meet the needs of my family? What, 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 what can I carve off for the needs of my family so that I can give the maximum amount? There's no percentage in the Bible because it's not about a minimum. It's about a maximum. How much can I invest in eternity because I know that's the best investment I could make with my money? My money is a tool in which I influence the world for Jesus Christ as I worship the Lord with my money, as I take care of the needs of people with my money, as I advance the kingdom of God and the gospel of God with my money, and finally, as I earn eternal reward through my money, as I exchange this thing that is worthless in eternity for something that has eternal payout, honor and glory and authority with Jesus Christ and his coming kingdom. Money is a great tool, one of the best tools that God has ever given you. The mistake that the world makes is that it just spends its time collecting tools, collecting hammers, hammers that are inherently worthless in eternity. Instead, let us take this tool of money and do with it what God designs. Give it away. Give it to the Lord. Give it to those in need. Give it to ministry, to missions. Use it wisely. And you will be exchanging something that has no eternal value for that which has infinite eternal value. Honor, opportunity, authority with Jesus Christ and his coming kingdom. Let me give you a few practical steps and we'll wrap this up. Step number one, I encourage you, if you've not read, tiny, tiny little book, but one of the best books I think that's been written, Randy Alcorn's The Treasure Principle. It'll take you about two hours to read. It is the best book I have ever read on a biblical concept of wealth incredibly motivating, inspiring. It is not, it's not particularly intellectually challenging. It's incredibly motivating. He helps us to understand wealth as Jesus sees it. Really challenge you. Read that if you haven't read it. You can borrow it from me. I think we have copies in the church library as well. Now, a few practical tips. If you've not been giving much to the Lord, if, if giving has not been a, a fundamental, consistent part of your life, let me challenge you to start today, even if that means starting small. Some of you are students. You have very little income. Some of you may have lost your job. You have no income coming in at the moment. 
Let me challenge you, even if it's just a few dollars, give something. Start small and then grow that gift over the years, especially if you're a student. If you'll start giving now, even if it's $5 at a time, well, that'll build the habit so that when you do have a job, when you do have money coming in, it's just natural. You're automatically investing. It's like doing an automatic deposit to your retirement fund. You are just automatically giving to the Lord. Build that habit, even if you have to start small. Second, give first. If you want it to be worship, then worship is about giving the first fruits, giving the best that we receive. When you get that paycheck, immediately set aside some to give to the Lord. Don't wait till the end of the month and give what you have left over. Give from the top. Next, give consistently. Giving is really not something that's supposed to just be done in December. Okay, I'm to the end of the year, tax time, let's give a big gift. Uh, that's nice to do, but, but giving is something that's supposed to be worship. It's supposed to be all the time in our lives. Give consistently every month, even every week. Give something to the Lord to build that habit because that's how we worship God is through the sacrifice that we're making financially. And finally, give joyfully. When you put that money in the plate, when you give that money to a friend who's going overseas, when you give that money, remember, this is really not a sacrifice when you get down to it. It's not in any way an obligation. This is actually an opportunity to invest what has no lasting value in that which has infinite, eternal value. Now let's, let's go before the Lord and, and ask for his help to grow us, to transform us into people who use this tool of wealth wisely. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to look at what Jesus taught us about wealth. We thank you that he didn't pull punches, that he was direct, that he, was, uh, that he just got straight to the point, Lord, and he's challenging us and convicting us. Thank you so much, Lord, for doing that. We pray that you would open our eyes, that you would remove the veil of blindness that this world puts over us, that we would see that wealth, that money, that possessions is not a worthy goal to pursue. That if all we're doing is amassing those things, we are wasting our time on that which has no lasting value. Please, Lord, help us to see our wealth, our money, our possessions as tools that we can use to worship you, to meet people's needs, to advance your gospel, and to earn reward in heaven that we'll enjoy forever. Please, Lord, transform our hearts so that we are people who love to give. We're not seeking a minimum percentage to give, but we're trying to give away as much as we can. Lord, thank you so much for giving us, for entrusting us with wealth. However much we have, we all have some wealth. Lord, thank you for giving us this wealth. Help us to use it wisely in ways, in ways that glorify and honor your name and that count for eternity. Thank you so much for the example that you've shown us in your son Jesus. In his name that we pray, amen.